0: Welcome to Fearless Hustle Collective, a podcast for creative female entrepreneurs and a home to honest conversations about the ups and downs of running your own business. Hello, it's been a while. I'm so excited to be back with season two of the podcast. It's been nice to take a little break, but I'm really glad to be back as I've missed the weekly conversations I have with you as a result of this podcast. So before we talk about today's episode, I just wanted to mention that at my 90-day membership from Female Entrepreneurs, starts this January and you can now sign up to be the first to gain access to early bird spaces. Uh, So the membership is all about community and support and we'll have two monthly experts covering topics such as goal planning, marketing, finances, self-doubt and well-being and so much more as well as bi-weekly group coaching calls to give you a focused start to the year. You'll be surrounded by women who know exactly what it's like to run your own business and the challenges that it brings with it. You can find out more over on my website at AnnaDenLevy.com. So, onto the first episode of Season 2. This week, I chat to Sass Petherick, a self-doubt researcher, coach and mentor. I first came across Sass through Sarah Tasker and I've been following her ever since. Sass is hugely knowledgeable on the topic of self-doubt and she helps us to understand why it comes up for us and how we can deal with it. Without further ado, let's welcome Sass. Hello, Sass. How are you? Hello, Anna. I'm so well. I'm really excited to be here. I'm so excited you're here too. (laughs) Um, So for those who don't know you, uh, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Sure. Um, I'm Sass Petherick. I am a self-doubt researcher and coach, and I mentor other coaches as well. Um, I've been a coach for about, oh gosh, seven, eight years now. Um, And before that, I was a management consultant working in the City of London, a very high-stressed job that eventually burnt me out. And so these days, I spend my time... um, researching self-doubt and how it shows up for us and I teach a couple of online programs and um, some workshops around the country called Write Yourself Home and I also have an annual retreat. Uh, so yeah, I absolutely love running my tiny business from from my spare room and um, with my little pooch Bodhi by
0: my side, um, life's good, life's good. It sounds like you're a busy lady in that because you've got quite a few different projects going on at the same time. Yeah, I have, but you know what, Anna, I'm one of these people that gets bored easily. Yeah. Um, I actually quite
1: like having my fingers
0: in lots of different pies. Yeah, I'm with you on that one, actually. (laughs) I quickly, quickly found that I needed other things to uh, keep me occupied, not just the one kind of main job, because it just, yeah, it it wasn't, um, I guess, fulfilling enough. Yes. Yeah,
1: I found that too. And I think now I'm sort of unemployable. Like I could never work for anyone else doing something where, you know, there were very clear boundaries about what my responsibilities were. I'd be, I'd be really difficult,
0: I think, to manage. <laughs> yeah. I think quickly, as soon as you start your own business, you quickly realise actually this is all good and I don't want to go back to the corporate setting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The,
1: the, the world's your oyster, and I think that kind of, in lots of ways. I, maybe not at first, but eventually it does make up for, you know, the the unpredictable income and the the kind of risk that we take on as business owners. But um, but I've found once you kind of get established and you sort of know where where your money's coming from and when it's going to arrive, um, you can really relax into it and and you get to be really creatively fulfilled in a way that
0: I don't think you can, um, you know, in a corporate role. No I totally totally agree. I think the first few months perhaps a year or so are quite nerve-wracking and Mm -hmm. it's just one of those things but like you say you kind of ease into it and yeah. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your childhood and um, where you grew up. Mm -hmm. What was that like?
1: Well I am um, am an emigrated immigrant. So um, so my, my accent is obviously not from the UK. I grew up in New Zealand and I was the first generation immigrant of um, British parents. So my, my folks are actually from the northeast of England. Um, I'm the first person in my family to ever go to university and my dad was the first person in his family to, um, to even not have to go down a coal mine. So, um, so I grew up with parents who had a very strong working class ethic, and they had sort of gone on this big adventure. They fell in love; it was a big romance. They fell in love, and within six months, they were on a boat to New Zealand, where they conceived me somewhere off the coast of Africa, apparently in a bunk bed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my parents are oversharers, right? So, um, nothing, like it. Was, yeah, <laughs> nothing was, yeah, nothing was not able to be talked about, and. Um, we had uh, we had quite a loud family. everybody was an extrovert. Um, so we talked about politics and books and um, life and uh, people. and my parents both worked in at the local psychiatric hospital. so uh, there was it was almost like um, there was nothing that was taboo. Mm. We talked about everything in our family. and sometimes, um, I think that was, that was both fantastic, but it also had a bit of a shadow side in that I had a lot of emotions. I, I, I was quite a sensitive kid, and I didn't really have a safe place to sort of process those. I was expected to talk about them. Um, and so that was, that was kind of tricky. Um, there was also this undercurrent in my family because um, I, I – was born with a um, quite a serious heart defect, and I had to have um, open heart surgery when I was four years old. Um, and at, around the same time, um, my baby brother Paul, who um, passed, who who was only alive for a few days, he passed away um, in his infancy. And and so at that in that. Period, that really close period of time, my parents, who were only in their early 20s, had a really sick child and one child had, had already died. And there was this real undercurrent of grief in, in my childhood of um, that at any moment something terrible could happen. Mm. Um, and, and it left me with this, um, my little four year old self kind of put those things together. And I believed that if I got well, and if I did well, then I would make everything better in my family. You would fix so everything. I have, yeah, I sort mm. of took that on. I took responsibility for my parents' happiness in some weird way. Um, and, and so, you know, that sort of started me on a path of, of trying really hard to be good. So I could read by the time I was around four um, before I went to school. I was always in the top stream at, cl- at school and, you know, I got a lot of praise and validation for, for being good at school. Um, I, and I really enjoyed it. I loved reading because that was an escape for me out of the, the kind of reality of, of family life where things weren't always that safe. Um, sometimes they were quite chaotic. Um, sometimes they felt really overwhelming. And so books for me were a way to escape and always have been. Um, and in a way of sort of making sense of the world. Um, but because I was quite um, academically minded like that, it just was a natural fit for me. Um that was a place where I I worked really hard and that extended out when I got to university and then when I got into the workforce. um, I've always been, and even now in my business, my tendency is to overwork, to kind of keep proving myself um, and proving my my worth and my value um, through what I produce, Mm. Um, which has been um, at times um, that has overwhelmed me and i have had several instances of um of burnout and needing to take you know significant periods of time off Um, but it wasn't really until i started putting together the pieces of my my history and where those beliefs came from that i started to understand why that was my natural tendency it felt like a sort of but that's just what you do you work really hard right and um it is even like a David Shrivley uh, poster, isn't there? Work hard and be nice to people um, as a kind of life motto. And that was sort of how I operated. But it was exhausting. It was mm. exhausting.
0: I have to say I relate to that so much, actually. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, um, mm. That's interesting. So mm. those childhood experiences, how would you say they have affected you um, as an adult now, I suppose? Um, well, I think for all of us, and certainly my um,
1: research um, into self-doubt suggests that all of our um, all of the experiences that we have both pre-verbally, like, so before we can even speak, and then in our childhood up to um, our sort of teenage years, are kind of how we first start forming our own identities, how we work out who we are in the world and how we get our needs met. And depending on the sort of lottery of the family we were born into, sometimes that's a really positive experience and sometimes it's quite traumatic. Um, and I'm, you know, just like everyone else, I had um, really lovely memories of my childhood and also um, confusing, frustrating ones, um, moments where I felt really alone. Um, quite, My dad was quite distant as a, as a parent and my mum was quite anxious. And so I had this sort of like slightly um, uh, difficult experience of trying to keep everybody happy mm-hmm. that I learned really early. Um, And I think that has sort of seen – that that has had echoes into my adult life where I always felt like I was the one of our friendship group, you know, whatever friendship group I was in at the time, that had to keep the peace and keep everybody happy. Um, For a long time, I found anger a really difficult emotion to be around because there was a sort of unspoken, seething rage that my dad had against um, the universe for taking his baby boy – And he projected that into all different kinds of ways. And now that I'm an adult, I can totally understand his pain and how difficult that must have been for him as a 26-year-old to have all of this real-life stuff thrown at him. and so that so there has been these really difficult times and um, and moments of of also great healing like just being able to see my dad as a as a person um, as a human in his own right rather than someone who was failing to live up to my expectations of what a dad should be um, that's meant that in the last sort of um, half a dozen years dad and I have become for the first time in our in our forty-five years of knowing each other, um, we're really close now. We—I um, got a lovely email from him this morning, um, just saying how he'd been. He'd met some friends and told them how proud he was of me, and he said it was a really nice thing to be able to do. And I just thought, gosh, that's that's so lovely to have that relationship now.
0: Yeah, it's so, so wonderful, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, and so, so I think for a lot of us, you know, when we grow up in these um, families, and it is a total lottery, right? Our parents are just doing the best they can based on the stories and the the skills and resources they have, um, and we as parents. I'm I'm not a parent, but we as parents collectively, we're doing the best we can. Um, and I think sometimes um, we forget, as kids, that even as adult kids, that. Um, our parents um, are, are often really flawed and, and confused and coping with life in the best way they can. Um, but, but as well, I think there is always room for, for some healing. And sometimes it takes 40 years for us to get there. And sometimes it, it takes longer. And
0: hmm. um, would you say that growing up you struggled with self-doubt or was that not a concept that you were kind of familiar with at the time?
1: Looking back now, I can see that it was um, a thread that ran right through my life, but I didn't know that's what it was. Mm. So um, I know that my tendency to keep the peace and to please other people, uh, to to overwork and keep proving myself, these are key ways that, um, that we respond to self-doubt. But it wasn't until I started um, my master's dissertation a few years ago now about three or four years ago now um and i started putting these pieces together and and seeing what the actual patterns were and how we respond to self-doubt how it shows up because i had thought that self-doubt was just this inner critic and that is the the kind of mainstream understanding of self-doubt is that it's this mean girl voice in our minds and it's often a girl it's um it, it's not often that we see uh, self-doubt characterised as, a, as an experience for boys and men, but I know that it is not a gendered experience, and it is much broader than, than the idea of an inner critic. We have, um, we have a, a, um, now I think I, I understand self-doubt to be a, a way of protecting ourselves from, uh, from psychological risk from the ways that we think we are going to relive past areas of trauma, pain, difficulty. Um, And so self-doubt comes in and says don't take that risk. And we respond to that in different ways. Um, And so now I can, having done that research, I can put those pieces together and I can see that all the times that I was trying to keep other people happy, that I was trying to make sure that I did everything right, I was trying to be good, that I was trying to, um, Uh, trying to overwork and working really hard to to get that validation. These were all ways that I was protecting myself from from psychological risk, from the risk that I might fail, that I might be too big or too much for people, um, that I might be rejected, that I'd be too emotional, um, that I'd be abandoned in some way. And these are like core core. Kind of across human sort of universal experiences of psychological risk, and so self doubt is there to protect us from that. It comes up and says, "Don't take that risk. What if you fail? Um, what if you're too much for people? Um, if you know, if you do that and it's not perfect, what will people think? How will they respond to you? Um, you could be shamed or humiliated or embarrassed, or cri- uh, someone could criticise you. You'd be judged. So all of these ways that we um, we kind of have these almost an undercurrent of beliefs, this whole system that's set up that we may not often be conscious of. These are the ways that self-doubt infiltrates our lives. And now I can kind of see that um, that was exactly my experience.
0: So how would you say self-doubt manifests itself um, in our lives? Well, um, I see self-doubt as... Um, as a
1: phenomenological experience, right? Which is a really fancy, big, long word that's hard to say. Um, but phenomenology is basically a, a, a whole experience. So it's quite a holistic way of looking at self-doubt. Um, so I think that when we experience self-doubt, it is uh, like a, an alarm that goes off inside of us that says this is risky, whatever we're we're doing. And sometimes that's about um, what we're creating or what we're... Um, how we're trying to connect with other people, how we're trying to lead ourselves, if we're trying to put boundaries in place, if we're trying to make decisions, self-doubt pops up like this little alarm and says, this is risky. And the way we all experience that alarm is quite personal and subjective. Um, but I found that there are common there are common factors. Um, so you might experience that, that inner critic. You might experience a kind of mean voice in your mind that is um, – that is telling you not to do something. That that you shouldn't do it. It's not it's not your place to do it. But you might also experience body sensations, like it can. And and I have never really had that mean voice, but I have always had this sort of. Um, it feels to me like a like a kind of um, bowling ball in my belly. That, to me, is the feeling of self-doubt. It's like the, the sort of floor drops out and, and I, feel, I can almost feel like the joy is sucked out of me. So it kind of, for me, it's sort of the Dementors from Harry Potter. That is what self-doubt feels like to me. It has a fearful aspect to it. Um, but you can also experience things like um, uh, emotions, difficult emotions, or um, seeing images of the past, memories. Um, you could also see uh, memories of the past, sort of images or, or um, ideas that, that come up for you or um, projected images of a kind of often a worst case scenario in the future. Um, so all of those things are, are this alarm working and it's all there to tell you that there is a risk and it's warning you of that risk um, and it's trying to prevent you from um, from taking any steps towards what it is you're trying to do. And what I found is that the, the kind of universal aspect of that is discomfort, right? We feel discomfort. Self-doubt feels uncomfortable. We don't want to stay there very long. And so we try to respond to that discomfort um, in various ways. And I found there are five kind of key ways that we respond. Um, we, we procrastinate, so we want to avoid the risk as much as possible. Um, and that that can be super um That can be super productive because we're doing things. We're just not taking any steps that have risk attached to them. Um, Passive behaviours where we are consuming, right? So we will sort of um, hide from the risk by um, scrolling, shopping, drinking, eating. We're consuming other stuff in order to kind of um, avoid having to experience that discomfort. Um, Proving yourself is also um, one I'm very over-familiar with where we're working really hard and over-giving, over-delivering um, and sometimes this can tip into imposter complex where you are, um, or imposter syndrome as it's known here, where you are um, kind of just waiting to be found out so you just keep working as hard as you can to sort of avoid being discovered. Um, to be found out that actually you're not as good as people think you are, or it's only a matter of time before people find out who you really are. Paralysis is another way we respond, and that is um, really about staying in place. It's a kind of freeze response. Um, and often we're sort of staying in possibility. So we're in that place of pre-contemplation where everything is possible, there is no risk, and it's a kind of nobody moves, nobody gets hurt type response. Um and then perfectionism is the is the fifth common response, and that's really kind of waiting for the risk to be over. Um, so we um, we try to control what's around us, um, to, and the the kind of ethos of perfectionism is you know if I'm good enough, if I'm thin enough, smart enough, nice enough, if my house is Instagrammable enough, if I'm perfect, then I won't be rejected or ridiculed if I'm perfect good stuff will happen but of course perfect is an impossible standard to reach and there are lots of people who um, will engage in perfectionist-type behaviours but don't believe they're good enough to call themselves a perfectionist, right? So it kind of becomes this insidious response. So those five, I call them the five P's of procrastination, passive behaviours, proving yourself, paralysis and perfectionism. They're the five common ways that we respond to self-doubt. And lots of um, kind of common mainstream sort of thinking around self-doubt only addresses
0: these responses right so I was wondering how the five P's and self-doubt in general can affect our ability to run a successful business it's so interesting because I
1: think that you can't really run a business without experiencing self-doubt I think it it honestly and for me this has certainly been the case and so many of the coaches I work with and the business owners that I coach through my programs they say the same thing. It's like this huge self-development process that you never sign up for mm-hmm. when you when you decide to run a business. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that when we're working for an organisation, um, be it a charity or a corporate entity or a brand, we have this kind of protective shield, right, of that business that we work for. And um, when we're running our own business, there there isn't, anything between us and our cl- and our clients between us and our customers so we're kind of exposed um, we' we're, we've, we have nothing between us and who we work who we are wanting to work with um, there are a ton of people on the internet who want to exploit <laughs> that vulnerability and um, charge you a ton of money to give you um, a, a five-step answer for how you should market and sell your products oh yeah there's plenty of those. Yeah. those and as well I think um, often we are working alone Uh, it's the first time we've done this so it's a it's a new experience and usually our heart and soul is fully committed to this business or to the possibility of this business now all of those factors to me are are ripe for self-doubt to pop up there's a ton of risk involved in running a business that's not just about financial risk or kind of you know will it succeed or not Um, we literally put our hearts on the line Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and so for anyone who's listening who is feeling that vulnerability that's exactly how you're supposed to feel that is exactly how you're supposed to feel you're doing something that's incredibly courageous and you're usually doing the job of a marketing department an accounting department a sales department in a content creation department yeah. as well as actually making your things, right, of where, whether they're services or products. You're doing that all on your own. So, frankly, I'd be more worried if you were feeling pretty invincible and nothing was a problem because <laughs> I sort of feel like that's a volcano waiting to blow. Yeah. Um, and I and I guess, you know, the only way through is through. I think that there is um, – there is now a sort of ma- slightly more mature approach to online businesses that I'm seeing since you know, a decade ago when I, when I sort of first started blogging and before you know, we knew about um, analytics algorithms and um, you know, ways to make money online when it was literally just a sharing sort of platform. Um, what, uh, what I've sort of seen is this first wave of how to make money online now I think we're entering a new a new phase where people are seeing that the, that our economy is actually starting to change, that we want to have a relationship with the people we buy things from for, for a lot of us. that you know mindful purchases are really important. and you know I know that my my kind of buying decisions have changed incredibly since I first un- sort of discovered the internet. Um, and I think that that can work in our favour. That often, if we are running a business of one, we get it, we get to turn it into whatever we want. And the self doubt comes up and says it's risky. But actually, I think um, once you have got over the initial fear of things like buying your own domain name and you know putting yourself out there in some small way, you get to kind of expand your tolerance for that risk. And I think often the, the desire to help other people, to provide a service for other people, to make beautiful things for other people, that desire to be kind of of service, um, is, when it's greater than the, the, the risk you feel, um, I think that is the factor that will determine your success. If you can hang on to that, of what why you're creating this and this business and why it matters to you, what it means for your clients, for you to show up, it's a way to kind of bypass that feeling of it's all about me, when actually it's all about what you're creating and, and providing for your clients.
0: Yeah, I think it's, yeah, you're so right that it's, it is important to focus on on that value you're providing like you say but also just focusing on your passion and actually well as as it, it's not as easy as you know a saying but trying not to focus on all of the fear actually that we all feel I think it's, it's... well and, and the thing about
1: fear is that it's always potential it's not usually real yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's kind of like what could happen, what could go wrong. Um and and I think, you know, there are if, if self doubt is like really holding you back if you feel like you're in the grip of it and it's almost impossible for you to kind of move yourself out of that. And there are you know, there are a lot of us where that is the case and we need some help to unravel why why self doubt is showing up, why it has this grip on us, why we seem to have this very sensitive response to psychological risk we can we can sometimes need some help to create some resilience that's quite robust and real for us not a kind of fake it till you make it type approach but mm. something that just acknowledges our story and it and helps us to understand why we're having that response um and and to kind of take you know supported steps that feel doable that kind of allow us to expand that tolerance for risk in a way that's that's sort of not when we're not on our own and some of us will power through it and kind of learn as we go and for some of us we need some support and some help to do that and and you know, it's just all what whatever you need to be able to get you to that place where showing up for your people, showing up for your business, advocating for your work um, feels less icky, you know, at least not icky enough to stop you from doing it, then, then that feels like progress to me.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I wanted to ask you about... Um, Obviously, you've mentioned that you worked in the corporate world uh, as a managing consultant for a little while. When did you decide you were going to kind of go it alone? Uh, Well, uh, yeah,
1: I worked as a a project manager and then a program manager and a program director and a management consultant. I, you know climbed the very dizzy heights of the corporate ladder I was earning a lot of money I had a lot of responsibility um, and I did that for 15 years and uh, both here and in New Zealand and eventually it was just uh, I got to a place where the next step for me was a kind of c-suite type role so I would be a um, either a a, a chief operating officer probably or you know chief of operations or something like that i sort of got to that level and every time i thought about getting my my boss's job i just wanted to throw up i literally felt mm. nauseous um and and at the time i had um i was going through a lot of like personal stuff as well um my mum died quite suddenly when she was relatively young um and I had gone through a divorce and I was really questioning a lot of my own kind of choices and where I was, what I wanted from life. And when mum died, at, she was only 53, it felt to me like the realisation that life is really short and you literally take nothing with you was really stark for me. And I just thought, what do I want? You know, I, was, I think I was 29 when she died and, and it was like, what do I want from the rest of my life, is this actually what I want? Because I did not feel fulfilled at all. Um, and I I actually took voluntary redundancy after a really stressful period of, of work. Um, and I ended up getting paid out six months salary, which was, it felt miraculous at the time. Um, but it meant that I had some space and some time, which was a huge luxury mm. um, to be able to really think about what I wanted to do. And I had worked with a ton of scientists and technologists and engineers, um, mostly men. And I had been sought out by, by some of the really kind of, you know, the, the sort of hard-ass blokes that I would work with. They would tell me what was going on for them personally. You know, do you fancy a coffee sass? I'd really like to run something past you. And then mm-hmm. suddenly it's like, I think I'm leaving my wife um and and I had no idea why they sought me out, but I loved those conversations. i I was able, I think, to move up the corporate ladder because I was trusted in that way. people, people would trust me with their stories. And I thought, that's really cool. If I could just have a job where I did that, that would be ace. <laughs> um, and when I took my redundancy, I um, I actually went to Glastonbury with a friend, and this sounds so crazy, but a shaman said to me, um, you're, you need to rest right now because everything is going to change for you, and uh, you're going to speak in front of big groups of people, and you're going to work with big groups of women, you're part of the new consciousness of our planet, and it was all quite odd. Mm-hmm. Um and I sort of said to him, I, and he looked like a lost geography teacher. He was not like there was no feathers or weirdness. Um, and I said to him, "What well, is there a job title for me in this consciousness?" And and he said, um, it, "There isn't. There isn't a kind of name for what you're going to do. But it's a bit like what I do. It's kind of the ceremony and ritual, and uh, you'll be helping people. It's like therapy, but coaching and." Um, there'll be retreats and workshops and I just remember thinking, I don't really understand what you're talking about, but I kind of know what you mean and it felt to me like he was naming something that I was longing for, but in a in a very kind of shaman-y way, <laughs> you know, as Glastonbury is, is home to um, and I thought, okay, well, I kind, of, I kind of know what coaching is. I kind of know what therapy is. I've had enough of it. Um, and eventually, um, you know, at the time I sort of put it down to a, you know, a fun conversation and sort of went home. And a few weeks later I got a phone call from a coaching company, uh, CTI, the Coaches Training Institute, who are really well respected. They have a very um, corporate model um, and are kind of tied with Harvard Business School and they do some great stuff. They, uh, I had done a fundamentals like two-day course with them a few years ago in a past um, – corporate job and they had rung and they rang me and said would you like to do the full curriculum we're having this kind of fast track um process and it was just this immediate full body yes that's the only way i can describe it it was like that's what i'm supposed to do that's
0: and incredible. within
1: half it was it was insane it, and it still makes me kind of goosebump up when i think about it and within half an hour of that first day of training I was like, this is me. This is what I'm supposed to do. And, oh, my God, this means I can make a job out of having these lovely, deep, rich, real human conversations with people. Amazeballs. So (laughs) kind of signed me up, you know. And and it did take another sort of three years where I was working part-time with, um, you know, I was taking on sort of short-term assignments back in corporate world. Um, I had a a fledgling coaching practice that I'd run in the evenings and sometimes the weekends which you know eventually after sort of three years of doing that I I completely burnt out and and over a weekend my husband and I had lots of really long conversations about what was this about and what was I doing this for and you know was I really committed and is this what I really wanted and and we decided that weekend that we would leave London because we couldn't really afford to live there, and for me to do this business. Um, and we would buy a, a small new build house, which was not particularly Instagrammable, um, uh, in the sort of commute about of London, so he could keep working, um, and and I had sort of a, we we agreed on a sort of eighteen month period where I would try and build my business and see what happened and see what what that meant. Um, and I just it was like falling in love. Those 18 months were huge levels of experimentation and learning. And I started a master's degree at the same time. And I just kind of sunk into immersing myself into this world and trying to kind of understand, you know, for, for the difference between therapy and coaching is that therapy is usually about a kind of, pathological type approach right so we pathologize behavior and we look at root causes and it's much more about diagnosis and sometimes medication whereas coaching is about helping folks who are pretty robust robustly healthy you know emotionally well people go from sort of all right to great and for me it just felt like that that felt Beautiful to me. My mum had worked as a psychiatric nurse for a really long time and had specialised in women with postnatal depression, and her work was, you know, incredibly emotionally taxing for her. And I knew I didn't want to go down the therapeutic route, although I have had quite a lot of um, training in in various um, therapeutic models and methodologies. But but for me, it was the the idea that I could help people who who were kind of in this place of. I sort of have things together. I don't really need to kind of mull over everything, but I want to make these links. I want to put the pieces together so my life can feel like mine. Um, and so, so yeah, and and as part of the master's degree in coaching that I did, um, we had to write a, a dissertation, and the more that I – that I kind of worked in this area the more that I realized that self-doubt was something that felt incredibly fascinating to me and quite layered and interesting and broad enough to keep me interested as well Um, but I did think at the time this is going to be a hard sell like (laughs) let's talk about your self-doubt people and uh, by the way can you pay me for that you know So, um, so going into this really uncomfortable place with people and seeing if we can make some sense of it and understand it, and then help you to move through it, come out the other side of it with some new resources and tools. Um, and and about sort of four or five years ago, I, I really sort of speci- decided to specialize in this this kind of work. And um, and yeah, I just kind of haven't looked back. It, it has kept me um, it has kept me occupied, and I remain fascinated by self-doubt
0: that sounds incredible it's it's it well it sounds like you've found your calling which is which is I think what we all hope to do um at some point in our lives I guess
1: Yeah.
0: and did you when you were working in the corporate world did you ever feel like something was missing like you yeah that's exactly what it feels like Anna. it is yeah something's missing Mm. this
1: isn't quite right or this shouldn't it feel better than this
0: Um,
1: but I think as well at the time one of the ways that I really protected myself was um, with a pretty robust emotional armor Um, so me in those days I was quite sarcastic I was quite uh, cynical judgmental Um, I had a really sort of quite cutting sense of humor which on in some ways I think could be quite um, cruel uh, but it was always that I was trying to kind of say, hey, I'm big enough and bad enough to work in this very male-dominated area where you have to be kind of alpha male to succeed. Yeah. And and I almost saw that as a kind of, um, you know, I, I'm big enough and hard enough to do this. Um, and I look back now and I just think, wow, but inside I just felt so lost. I felt like I, there's, a, there's a softer part of me, there's a part of me that is – you know, that loves to read and bake and is quite gentle and sensitive. And she's kind of hanging back in the background and she has done for decades now. And and I think when I finally burnt out, I was able to just give her some space because I didn't have to have this protective armor on all the time.
0: Mm. So I'm assuming you didn't feel like you could show those kind of more soft i suppose or feminine sides to your uh, personality when you were in that corporate um, setting it never occurred to me that i could but mm. that's not to
1: say that i couldn't have i think um in the city uh, in the city of london which is um where i where i worked for most of the time um and in central government as well um you you're usually the only woman in the room mm-hmm. and um i think to bring in those qualities would um, but they weren't valued for a start. Any any of those those kinds of more feminine qualities of collaboration and um, and, and and I say that in a kind of archety- archetypal way rather than a gendered way. Right, the things that we consider to be um, the skills that 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 women bring, but I think they obviously anyone can bring them, um, but collaboration and, and listening and vulnerability and being able to kind of be wrong and learn as we go, um, those qualities were not valued in any of the workplaces I were I was in, and I saw that anyone who did try and bring those qualities in were, um, were held back or let go very quickly. So you kind of learn by people's actions. Um, and it was a really work hard play hard culture. So um drinking was a huge part of that emotional armor as well. Um, and and I was definitely, you know I did not have a good relationship with alcohol. and um, and was, you know I think now I, I had a problematic relationship, which was probably um, alcoholism. Uh, but I haven't had a drink in seven years, and I've never felt so awake you know Mm. and that's all part of it is once you take away those those bits of armor once you actually release yourself from them you get to feel everything and you get to um, allow different parts of yourself out into the world Um, and sometimes that can feel quite vulnerable but also it's really who you are it's really who we all are yeah
0: staying true to yourself Mm. Mm. amazing um, I wanted to talk to you about the self-doubt archetypes and the quiz that's kind of caused a bit of a storm on social media <laughs> it has it has, it really has yeah and it's been incredible watching it kind of um, just being shared all over the place so do you want to tell us a little bit about that yeah well I started
1: um finding out uh well I, ha- I had a suspicion a few years ago that there were these common stories that people were telling me about their experience of self-doubt about how you know what what kind of triggered it how they responded to it what their experience of it was and that those patterns you know really uh what Anyone who loves research, which I do, um, anything that looks like a pattern is is like a breadcrumb trail that you want to follow. And earlier this year, I just thought, I'm going to have a look at this. I just want to figure this out. Is this actually a thing? And um, and what I found was I, I literally took um, all of the notes and uh the comments that people had made through lots of discussion forums. So there was literally hundreds and hundreds of of little data points. Um, And I put them on post-it notes all over the wall and looked for patterns and found that there were in fact um, distinct groups, distinct ways that we experience respond and are triggered by self-doubt. And and they they sort of cluster into these four core groups about um, leadership and how, how we kind of set a vision for ourselves and where we where we lead ourselves to, um, belonging which is really about our sense of connection both with ourselves and other people, uh, boundaries which is um, you know how how we kind of c- create a a boundary around ourselves so we know what's ours and what's other people's and what we want to say yes to and no to but also kind of the territory we allow ourselves to take up in the world um and also around our own wisdom like how do we trust ourselves when the answers are not (laughs) googleable you know how do we figure out what is right for us and and how do we lean into both our, our intellectual capacities and our instincts our intuition um And so those four areas um, really started to um, flash light bulbs for me. And I saw that there were, within each of them, three quite distinct patterns of behaviour. And so this created 12, what I came to understand as archetypes, um, 12 um, sort of typical patterns of behaviour, tendencies, traits um, that that describe how we experience and respond to self-doubt, and offer some ideas about what might trigger this, what might have been the cause of this, or at least um, when you might have learnt that this was a way of protecting yourself. Um, and yeah, I I created these these booklets for each of the archetypes with a description and kind of showing how they um, how they show up, and also some suggestions for how folks can kind of experiment with, with interrupting those archetypal patterns. And yeah, over 3,500 people have done the quiz mm-hmm. so far and it's, it's only been live for, well, a month today so um, I'm I'm gobsmacked by that um, and it's amazing how people are, are kind of sharing that and and um, you know all the designers are kind of like oh you're a designer too and oh my gosh <laughs> this feels like me and and I guess you know a lot of I have had a few comments from people asking am I a witch am I psychic how did I know this um, or did I write this just for them and and my response is always the same it's like actually when you when you research, data across a good enough pool you yeah. see the patterns and that's what it t- and it tells you stories and if you can create that story into something that is relatable to folks then chances are it, you are going to reflect back something that they understand about themselves um, so I'm thrilled that it's um, it's been so well received of course um, but I'm also kind of excited about Helping, supporting particularly women, I think, in this time in our history, for women to recognise the stories that they have been told by family, organisations, teachers, um, other adults in power, and the culture um, that sometimes our self-doubt isn't actually based on our own experience. It's based on, you know, the politics of the world that we live in. And I think at this time in history, for more women to understand that there is a way out of that, that we don't have to keep ourselves small and dim our light and be good and nice and kind and Mm -hmm. and kind of indifferent to our own emotions and particularly our own rage. I think that those, um, if I can do anything that can tip the balance for people People to see um that there is a way another way of responding to how our world is moving at the moment then that will feel to me like a uh, job done
0: yeah amazing and for those who would want to take the quiz they can uh, they can find it on your website can't they yes it's
1: it, there's a link on the home page
0: perfect now I took it a while back I think was very soon after you launched it um and yeah and I remember reading back through it again another time and I was like oh yeah actually <laughs> yeah. I, I do all of these things <laughs> yeah yeah it's very yeah. interesting how, yeah. like you say you, you've kind of looked at the patterns and broke it all down I guess
1: yeah and I think it can help us feel less alone as well I think one of the yeah. things that exacerbates self-doubt is this feeling that. Um, I'm alone in this and I'm the only one feeling it.
0: Yeah, nobody else is experiencing that very thing, e- yeah.
1: Exactly. Mm. So to see everyone on social media sharing their their archetypes is amazing because what I am seeing as I'm sort of seeing all the conversations happen as they're um, copying me in and things like that is that um, people are having these lovely feelings of um connection through that like oh wow you're an you're an altruist too oh i see that in you as well and um it's it's a kind of a, a lovely experience of feeling seen
0: so what are your goals for the coming year i know that you are in the process of writing a book
1: i am that is probably one of about three goals that i have over the coming year um i've been um Playing with the idea of a book for quite a long time and experienced quite a lot of self doubt around my ability to actually write one. Um, but I'm now working with a fabulous uh, book coach, uh, Christiane of Book Wifery, who has coached with me before. So I love how that sometimes works, mm, right? Yeah. And um, and she's she's a really experienced editor and um, and has worked in different publishing houses and is just super has a super Important and useful process to sort of work through. So um, yeah, so over the next year, I'm hoping to finish that manuscript and get it to a to a publisher. I'd like to, it to be published traditionally, and uh, rather than self-publish, I kind of I want the as much reach as I can get. Um, so. So I'll be looking to pitch that to agents and editors um, as the as the year unfolds, and I'm going to share that process because I think it's one that we all can. Anyone who wants to write a book, it's yes. sort of it sometimes feel like, bloody hell! Everyone that is known seems to get this amazing, you know, deal, and they just announce the success rather than um, everything else. Yeah, so, the steps
0: uh, taken. Yeah, no, yeah. It's, it's you're very right. I think. Um, yeah it is a kind of a bit of a hidden process that nobody really Hmm. talks about uh, in in that much depth, I suppose. Exactly. So yeah, that'd be really interesting.
1: Um, Yeah, and my other goal is really, I'm running a retreat for my first retreat in Somerset next year, next May. And so... spots are going to go uh, live on my birthday on the 19th of October so um that is going to be ace and we're going to be diving into the shadow and light aspects of self-doubt there which will be fabulous so yeah some some good stuff coming up
0: amazing amazing and what would you say is your number one tip for those trying to either leave their nine-to-fives or just starting their own business
1: uh, be really kind to yourself. Um, so don't put a ton of pressure on your business to be successful really fast. Mm. There is no such thing as an overnight success. Um, so plan, you know, go part time and, and try it out in the weekends or in the evenings to start with and see where you get to.
0: You're so right. I think we do see people kind of, um, well, it seems like an overnight success sometimes because when you're looking from the outside, that's what it looks like.
1: Exactly, yeah. exactly. But it's yeah. so
0: important to to not forget that actually a hell of a lot of work has has gone into it
1: exactly yeah yeah so
0: um to kind of finish off our conversation i ask all of the guests um what is their favorite book they've been recently reading and would like to recommend
1: um i would love to recommend everything under by daisy i think it's daisy goodwin daisy johnson sorry um everything under it's a it's sort of Uh, everything under by daisy johnson it's this fabulous tale of mothers and daughters and madness and words and it's set in oxfordshire and it is is brilliant it's really really good
0: that sounds actually yeah sounds really good so i'll pop down my list and uh who would you like to hear interviewed on the podcast
1: I would love to hear Gemma David, my friend Gemma, who is um, a Chinese medicine healer. Um, she's an acupuncturist. She's a meditation teacher, a yoga teacher. Um, she works here in Bristol, and she is uh, the Quiet Heart on Instagram. Um, she has a beautiful story, um, and I would I would love to hear more and to get her story to be shared with more people.
0: Oh, that sounds very interesting. I'll definitely be checking her out. Cool. And uh, to finish off, where can people find
1: you? at sasspetheric.com and i'm at sasspetherick on twitter and instagram
0: perfect thank you so so much for your time today you're super super welcome thanks pleasure to talk to you thank you so much for tuning in as always i'd be really grateful if you could leave a review on itunes so that other female creatives can enjoy this podcast too i'll see you next week